Well, this morning uh, we're going to cover Acts chapter 26 and verses uh, 19 all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, We're going to pick right up in the next verse. We ended in 26.18 last week and we're starting right back with uh, verse 19. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter this morning. Let me, I'll read these verses for us. Uh, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying, Know the things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak, freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that none, that not only you, but also those who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these change. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and all those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man has done nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for our time this morning. Father, we just ask that You be here with us today. We ask that Your Holy Spirit will be with us uh, today as He's promised to be as we gather together. And we just pray that He'll be our teacher. Father, and we pray that You will use Your Word today to accomplish what You have set forth for it to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we heard Paul's uh, account of his conversion on the road to Damascus. We learned a couple of things. That when that was the third time, if you remember, that we learned about Paul's conversion, we talked about the significance of that, um, and uh, we learned a few, a couple of new things which we went over uh, last time. He is telling Festus and Agrippa. He's telling them, and he saw a bright light, uh, nooner, uh, or brighter than uh, the noonday sun, and Jesus spoke directly to him from heaven and called him to this mission. This mission that he has been about for twenty years, over twenty years. And after uh, recounting these events, Paul says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, when you hear that statement, it's a bold statement about being disobedient. Paul says, I was not disobedient uh, to the heavenly vision. Now, Unless you tell me different, which I think I know the answer to this question, you you and I, okay, have never seen a light brighter than the noonday sun, okay. Um, 
You and I have never seen the visual representation or experience of uh, the raised, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Okay, you and I have never seen Him with our own eyes. Um, we, we've we've never heard directly from Him, audibly with our ears. Okay, now of course I'm describing this Paul's uh, uh, meeting of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. I'm describing that you and I have never experienced anything like that. Okay. But we all have been converted. If you're here today, you're a believer, you have been converted, you are saved. And what we know about biblical conversion it is that it is the immediate supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, whereby the soul of a sinner who has lived his or her entire life in darkness is all of a sudden brought into the kingdom of light. Now that's an amazing experience, isn't it? That is not the noonday sun... Okay, that is not that kind of light, but in a very real sense, it was an amazing experience from darkness into light. In a spiritual way, a supernatural way, the same thing that Paul experienced. Paul experienced it and it was a sensory experience. He saw it with his own eyeballs and he felt it and heard it with his own ears. We can't say the same thing. Uh, but we've all experienced uh, the vision of God in our souls because He has shine, shown His light through the power of the Holy Spirit into our soul and it is driving out darkness. However, unlike Paul, we can't say that we've always been obedient to that heavenly vision, can we? We can't say that. We've experienced this, this in a different way okay, than, than Paul, uh, but, but we've experienced that heavenly vision. God has shown His light in our soul. But we can't say we've never been disobedient. Now, we may try and excuse ourselves and say, well, but who has? Well, Paul has. Paul, Paul says, I, have not, I was not disobedient. And he was not bragging. This was... Uh, he, he's not... He's not putting on a show. He's just telling uh, the truth. Uh, he was speaking before a king, someone who had authority over him, and he was telling the truth. I've never been disobedient to the heavenly vision, my heavenly calling. Paul continued, and and he went on, and he said, he's basically he's kept the great commission. Why? Because he he he'd said where he had gone. Okay, he he had preached first in Jerusalem to the Jews. Uh, then in Judea, and then to the Gentiles. Okay, does that sound like the Great Commission? Yes, almost word for word sounds like the Great Commission. He stood before all sorts of people, he says, big and small, little and great. And he called every one of them to repent. The message was the same, no matter who he was speaking with. He did not, as some may say, uh, preach the doctrine of justification by works. He mentions works here. But it was in response to the faith. It was not as a requirement for faith or a requirement for salvation. It was just the opposite. He preached the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you. And then that faith produces works. It is in response. It is out of obedience to God that good works come and flow out of a life that's been changed. Paul understood of of all people that our works are powerless to make us right before God. There is not one good thing we can do that can make us acceptable before God. There's not one thing that can make us right before a holy and a righteous and a just God. 
But once converted, our faith does produce those works of obedience and righteousness in our own lives. And that's the message that Paul preached. That is consistent. If you and we've gone through this, we've we've studied this for weeks now, months. That's the message he preached, and that's why people wanted to kill him. This message of repentance by and salvation and by faith alone that produces good works and the righteousness of Christ. That's the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people want to kill him for that. Verses. 22 and 23, it says, this is Paul continuing, he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets of Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now what we know, and Paul knows, and most people of the day knew they weren't willing to admit it, but the Bible teaches and prophesies in the Old Testament that the servant of Israel, as he's called in some places, the Messiah, must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. That's prophesied in the Old Testament. Now here, Paul is talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies. And then he brought light to the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> Paul said he witnessed he witnessing he said he says witnessed witnessing both to small and great. What's Paul's an intelligent man. He's choosing every word very carefully. The Holy Spirit is there with him guiding him, giving him helping him to make uh present these words before whoever he's before, but nonetheless in this case what Paul was saying here when he says um, this message is for small and great, he's basically saying, King Agrippa, this message is even for you. Remember, we said that last week. Remember, we talked about his defense and how the primary thing, the goal behind what he was saying was to be, because he's an evangelist and a missionary and an apostle, he's, he, I'm trying to convert Agrippa. That's my message. I'm trying to share the gospel with him so may, he may be converted. That was his whole point, remember? Not necessarily, necessarily to, to save himself or to free himself from captivity. It was that maybe at this time the Lord will use my words to save this man. So you got to remember that's in Paul's head. So Paul's saying this message is even for you. This message that he's telling him about why the, Gent- why the Jews want me killed, this message is even for you. Calvin commented here, he said... <clears throat> Paul was neither afraid of the dignity of the one, neither did he loathe the baseness of the other, but he showed himself a faithful teacher to both alike. Paul wasn't, again, the message didn't change depending on where you were in life, where your station was in life. It was for all. It's for the, the lowest of the low, it's for the greatest of the great. Uh, Paul also, he added that in his uh, commentary about what he's been saying, he says, he used the word saying no other things. His message, okay? He says he was saying no other things. What, what was Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, I'm only saying what Moses and the prophets have already said. Okay, I, about the Messiah. That, that's, that, I didn't come up with anything new here. Okay, this is 
here. This is in the Old Testament. It's prophesied. That's what I'm saying. And that, uh, for all of us, should be an example because Paul's saying, I'm just using, I'm using the Word of God. Uh, this is not me. This is not Paul's words. This is God's words. And that should be an example to all of us that when we teach or when we instruct others, we add absolutely not one word to the Word of God. It is not what you think or what I think. It's what does the Word of God say? And that is to be our only instrument in sharing uh, the gospel with Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Calvin had another helpful comment here. Uh, when Paul introduced, when he starts here uh, in verse 22, he says, "Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand." So Paul's saying, I'm here because of God's help. Okay? And only because of God's help. He's preserved me. He's preserved my life. And that's the why I'm here. Calvin said, by, by which example we ought to be taught, that so, 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 as so often that we may be delivered from danger, the Lord does not therefore prolong our days that we may afterward live idly, but that we may do our duty cheerfully. And be ready to die at every hour to His glory, who hath reserved us unto Himself. Calvin's words are helpful. He's commenting here, and Paul understood it. He didn't. The Lord hasn't saved Paul for Paul's sake. It's, it's that's not why He has spared Paul. He has spared Paul for the Lord's sake, for his kingdom, so that he can be able to continue uh, to preach the message. It's not a, if we experience some sort of um, rescue in this world, if, if God intervenes and he saves us from a bad situation, it's not that we can live the rest of our lives idly and sit by, okay, well, he saved me from that. Now I can sit back and do nothing. No, it's, we still have to be engaged. And, and we see that in Paul's life because the things that, that got him in trouble with the world, he didn't stop doing. God would save him from one, he kept on doing it. He'd save him from another, he kept on doing it. It, There was because that's what God had called him to do, and he was faithful. He was faithful. He was not disobedient to the heavenly mission or the heavenly vision. Well, both uh, the king, both uh, Festus and Agrippa, uh, had agreed to let Paul speak. Uh, But at this point, Festus had heard enough. Okay, he had heard everything that all this, and it was too much. And he says, and Luke tells us that he interrupted Paul with a very loud voice. In verse twenty-four, it says, "Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad." It's almost like Paul, excuse me, like Festus is saying, "Paul, I think you've educated yourself beyond your intelligence. You're too smart for your own good." Right, it's almost like if we wanted to say something. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a uh, spruill comment. There's a very thin line between genius and insanity, right? And I think uh, what Festus is trying to say is, says, "Hey, you've skated way over that line. You're you're over. You're a smart guy, but you're dabbling over here, and you're just you've become insane. And and you surely just don't know what you're talking about." Uh, Paul was, excuse me, Festus was saying that Paul was basically a maniac because if you do some word study, the Greek word uh, that, that is translated here, mad, okay, is where we get our English word maniac. Okay, so, so what's Festus trying to say? You're a maniac. You're out of your mind for believing and saying these things. 
Now, Festus admits that there's a lot of education, a lot of learnedness packed into what Paul is saying. Because it says, says uh, much learning has driven you mad. So he, he knows Paul has studied and he's, he's an educated man, but, uh, but what uh, Festus is saying, I, I understand that, but in a very real sense, uh, because Festus, you got to remember this too, he's, he's, the things that Paul are presenting are gospel matters. Okay, this is gospel truth from um, from uh, the Old Testament. I remember Festus is a Roman. I remember he's so he's not familiar with the Old Testament. Okay, but but he admits that there was a lot of learning packed in this speech. But we also have to remind ourselves, and in a very real sense, the gospel is hidden from unbelievers. Okay, Festus is not a believer. We have to remember that. That in a very real sense, the gospel is hidden from unbelievers. Why? Because they they have not been regenerated. Okay, they they can't understand these matters. Um, they can't understand the truth. They can't see it. They're blinded to the truth of the gospel. We know that Paul understands this because Paul writes over in Second Corinthians later. He says, "But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing." whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So we shouldn't be surprised that Festus thinks what Paul's saying. Well, he's just crazy. Well, Festus is blinded to the truth of the gospel message. Again, Paul understands that. But Paul's also committed, and Paul knows that by sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what God offered, That's what God uses to save people. So Paul knows that. Paul, Paul knows that he uses these words and the Holy Spirit acts and can make someone alive based on what they hear. Faith cometh by hearing. Right? Hearing the word of God. So Paul doesn't shy away from any of this. Paul was not at all ruffled by this. He was not intimidated by this interruption. From Festus, um, he listened to what Festus had to say. Well, and, and of course, this was not uh, the first time that anyone has called Paul crazy. Okay, <laughs> so again, not a new thing for Paul. This is not his first rodeo, right? He's he's been there and done that many times, uh, and he's committed to keeping uh, committed to the message, and is consistent as we've we've shared many times about Paul's life. <clears throat> Verse 25, this is Paul's answer to this uh, from Festus. He says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. I'm not mad, but I speak the words of truth and reason. Notice Paul is very uh, respectful of Festus. He calls him most noble Festus. Uh, He's respectful of him because Festus uh, has a position. And in, in authority, and he has authority, and he treats him with great submission. Even though, and this is the, you know, and you you have been in this position. I know I have been in this position um, because the reality is Festus was not worthy of any honor. Festus was not a really good guy. Okay, he was not worthy of any honor, but he was in a position of authority, and Paul recognized that. Paul submitted to that. He's in a position of authority, and I will give him the honor that he just due to the position. 
That's a hard one, okay? Just consider present times that we live in. People that are in positions of authority that we don't agree with, that are probably not honorable men and women. Some We know some of them are not honorable men and women. However, they're in a position of authority and we are to give them respect. Dr. Sproul commented here uh, about this interaction with Festus and Paul and says, you know, Paul didn't care about religion. Christianity is not about religion. It is about the truth. It is about sober truth. That's the words that Paul uses here. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not mad. I'm speaking words of truth and of reason. This is not unreasonable what I'm saying. It's not unreasonable that a sovereign, righteous, omnipotent God can raise someone from the dead. What's unreasonable about that? Not one thing is unreasonable. It's not illogical at all. It's completely logical. There's nothing... He's saying that's what I am talking about. It's, it's truth and it's, and it's reason. And uh, Dr. Spruill went on to say, Biblical Christianity is, is not about finding a purpose for your life. It's about finding the truth of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's true. Okay, that is true. It's about... And, and, and once you learn about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in your life, then you understand the purpose of your life, right? That comes first. You understand who Jesus is, and then you can understand the purpose of your life, right? It falls into place. And then, of course, in the light of that truth, when, when someone understands who Jesus is and they understand what He's done for them, then they're able to understand the world around them. Because without the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who God is and what He's done, we can't understand anything that's going on in this world. That's why so many people today are lost. They are wandering aimlessly. They have no idea how to deal with what's going on in this world. They cannot process anything. And because of that, they're turning to all sorts of coping mechanisms. They're everywhere. You know it. You know someone who's struggling with this. Maybe you have struggled with this. Uh, it, it's it's everywhere. It's it's just because because they are they're shutting they're shutting God out and they're not interpreting events through His lens, looking at it through God's lens. How does God see things? And they don't do that. And certainly Festus is not doing that. Okay, certainly he's not. He's looking purely on uh, human terms. Okay, on purely on the horizontal. He's completely forgetting about uh, the vertical because to him it doesn't exist. To him, God doesn't exist. And it's a sad place to be. Well, Paul's talking with Festus, but then he does what? He brings Agrippa in. Okay, he brings the king in, King Agrippa, who was familiar. Remember, we talked about him last week. He's familiar with the Jewish customs. He's familiar with the law. He's familiar with the Old Testament. He himself's a Jew. So he should kind of know what's going on here. Verses uh, 26 and 27. It says, for the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. He's talking about Agrippa. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since these, these, this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul is not shying away from anything. He's dealing directly with the people before him. Even though this man's a king and he's in a position over authority of him, he doesn't hold any punches. He doesn't hold anything back. Now, Paul's point about these things, he, he, he tells, he asks Agrippa, surely you know about these things, what done in the corner. And, and, and 
what Paul knew and what Agrippa knew was the claim that Jesus was raised uh, from the dead was not a secret. It was well known okay, throughout the region. Well known that this claim was made. Okay, that, Not all eyewitnesses, but it was well known. Especially Agrippa would have known that the Christians had claimed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They, he would have known about this. And he did know about this. Sproul commented here, he says, you know, Christianity did not begin with uh, secret rites and rituals that only a few people knew about. Uh, that's, how, that's how cults begin. Okay, you know the difference. Okay, not, Christianity's origins are none like, it's not like, it's not a secret handshake, it's not a secret pin that you wear, it's not a certain way you dress, it's not some sort of rites and rituals, it's very public. Um, Again, you can look at the history of uh, modern cults, and this is how they begin. Look at look at Mormonism. Okay, its origins are cultish, are secret. It's it's very it's nothing like Christianity, nothing like biblical Christianity. The uh, and and Paul's making his point here that the manifestation of the Son of God was a public thing, very public. Thing. It was not private. It was not secret. None of these things were done in secret. Dr. Sproul had for some challenging comments here. And he asked the question, how many times have you heard one say this? My faith is personal and private. How many times have you heard someone say that? Well, if... And this is what, and this is hard. And this is Sproul. He says, "If you have said that, then you need to repent and ask God to forgive you." That's bold, isn't it? But it's true. Okay, it's true. He goes on to say, "Because if your faith is private, then you don't have the Christian faith." Mm. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? If your faith is private, then you don't have the Christian faith. Because Christians are commanded by our Lord and Savior to share it with other people. Now, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's not a do this if it feels right or if it's convenient. It's it's a commandment to do it in all circumstances. Now, the world tells you and me to keep our faith private. You can have your religion, you can have your faith, but keep it to yourself. Don't bring it into public. Don't bring it to the office. Don't mention it in the school. Make sure that you keep it personal and you keep it private and we'll all get along. That's true, isn't it? That's the message of the world to Christians. Well, they say we'll all get along, but guess what? If we do that, if we listen to the world, we may get along with them, but we will not be getting along with Jesus. Now what's more important? Getting along with Jesus and getting along with the world. Now, this is... This is a hard one. As I was looking through this and, and just thinking about these things throughout the week... I just, I know there have been times in my own life when I have not shared my faith when I should have. I know there, and I, and, I, and 
I just I can look back, I can think of things. And it's hard to think of specific times, but I can think of situations, you know, when um, probably for the sake, and it's usually for me, it would be have been career oriented. It would have been work oriented. Or maybe I didn't say something because, for fear of it might affect my job or my status at work. Right? And that, that's, that's difficult to think about. How many times that may have actually happened. Because if I can think of some, then it probably happened a lot more than the ones I can think of. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, and you know these words, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Whoa, right? Heavy, heavy words from Jesus. Because when I refuse to share my faith, or when I refuse to speak the words of the truth for fear of some, something might happen to me at work, what I, I'm, I'm saying, I'm ashamed of Jesus. That's really what I'm admitting. That I'm ashamed to share my faith in this situation. And it's not always um, that you're ashamed, but a lot of times we just leave things unsaid. You you know, a lot of times we're guilty of that when we should speak truth. And every situation is different. and And I get that. But we should always, the truth of the gospel, the fact that there is an answer for what's wrong in the world, that should be the first thing out of our mouths. To people who were who need to hear the gospel, because you never know what's going to happen. You could have a life uh, that is difficult and challenging, as Paul's. Okay, that was something different around every corner, and there was somebody trying to kill him or put him in jail, and that may be the life God calls you to leave, uh, to live. Or uh, God could use simple conversations and words that you share in truth, and He could change somebody's life. Which is obviously He did that with Paul's too. Many are saved because of the words that he shared. Now Paul's point here and sharing these things and making the point, Jesus was killed publicly. He was raised from the dead publicly. He did not appear to only a select few. He appeared to over 500 different people after his resurrection. Okay? Excuse me, over 500 people at one time. I think it was thousands of people that he appeared to. Sorry, I got the numbers wrong. It was thousands of people who had seen the risen Jesus, but he appeared to over 500 just at one time. It is a public matter. And uh, God has commanded, He's commanded to Paul, He's commanded to you and me, that this truth, the truth of the resurrection of His Son as Savior of His people, that truth needs to be made known to the entire world. That is a message that everyone needs to hear. And so Paul asked the king directly, Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know that you do believe. Now when you think about this question, this, this was an intelligent question. This was very, very smart for Paul to ask this question of Agrippa. It was, it was it's very similar. You remember last week we talked about the question that, that Sproul posed to the Presbytery when he wanted to found Ligonier Ministries. You know, it was a, 
He kind of it was it was uh, it was a real question, but it put them on the hot seat. If they said one way, then they convict themselves, and it was a very difficult position. Well, this is a very shrewd question, and it put the king in a dilemma because this is the problem. If this is and this is a good if he affirmed the belief in the prophets, then he would also have to admit that they taught about that they talked about Jesus' death and resurrection because they did. It's there. An admission would make him appear foolish now before his Roman friends. Because remember, he's trying to play both sides here. Agrippa's trying to keep everybody happy, which you can't do at the end of the day, right? You can't do. But to deny the prophets, okay, so one thing, remember, he's Jew. He's a Jewish, he's king over the Jewish people, but to deny the prophets would completely outrage all the Jewish subjects. So you say he's in a tough spot. How he answers this question. And so basically he doesn't answer it. He avoids the question, which I'm guilty of doing a lot of times. When it's a difficult question. I will try to avoid the question, right? Well, Agrippa replies with these words. And it's in verse 28. He said, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. He almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Dr. Sproul said that that's the most tragic words Agrippa ever uttered in his life. Now, MacArthur's study Bible offered this. Uh, he offered this. He said, a better translation may be here. Do you think that you can convince me to become a Christian in just a short time? Wait. You know, this, this brief interaction, that was, that was MacArthur's study Bible. Do you think you can really convince me in just this short little interaction to be a Christian in such a short time? Well, what we know is that the apostle of Jesus Christ, the one that Jesus called on the road to Damascus and called him to preach and to be a, a missionary and an evangelist and an apologist, he was standing right before him, face to face, offering him the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching Christ to him. This message is for you, King. That was his point. It's not just for the simple and the lowly. It's for the great and the small. And Agrippa says he was almost persuaded. Almost. Wow. You know, Dr. Sproul loves golf. You know, he's a big golf fan. And so he tells about a conversation that he heard between two golfers one time. So following a tournament, uh, one of the golfers said to the other, the difference between winning the tournament and not winning the tournament is one stroke. One stroke. Then the other countered and said, the difference of one stroke is not a tournament. It's a career. One stroke better and my entire life changes dramatically. I don't follow golf, but if you do, you can probably understand this a little bit. Because that's in the golf world, that's that's kind of true. I mean, you win one tournament and everything dramatic, dramatically changes in your life. Okay, everything. It's just, just one tournament because it's so competitive. That pro, the one uh, that he said uh, the difference is not just tournaments, it's a career, he'd almost won the tournament. It almost won. One stroke. 
one small stroke. He went on to say that everyone has those moments in their lives. We all have had those moments in our lives where we can look back and we can just say, just that one time, if, if we had just done that one thing, one small thing, things would have turned out so much better for me. Or just maybe if I had, and this is, where I, this is what I'm guilty of, if I had just this one thing, my life would be so great. You know, we put things. It's just just one thing, and everything would be great. I remember, I remember like it was yesterday. I remember Shane Martin standing here during the sermon, and he and and I don't even remember what the sermon's about, but I remember him saying, "Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we think all of our problems will be handled with money, with more money." And and we're now, I'm sitting in the choir, okay, so I can see everybody. And you know how many heads were doing this after he said that? Because you know he did it. He taught it. He said it like Shane, because he says it in that northern Greenville County accent and that right. And you know, in that, that y'all remember that draw? And and nobody could deny it because how many of us are guilty of that? I, all my problems would go away if I just had more money. More money would fix everything. Just a little more money. And again, you can see the heads. Yep. I mean, I could I could see him. He's right. Because a lot of us think like this. We think one more thing would make all the difference in the world. Well, think about Paul now. Put yourself in his shoes. I know it's difficult, but put yourself in his shoes, standing before Agrippa and hearing that. He almost persuaded me. What's his response? Verse 29. He says, I would to God that not only you, but also all those who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul saying, I want you to know Jesus above everything. I want you to be like me, except for these chains. I want you to be all together like me, knowing Jesus Christ for who he is. Because Paul's point, that changes everything. That one thing changes everything, doesn't it? Like that one stroke, it's a difference of a tournament of career. That one thing that the golfer looks to, knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. And that should be our plea, the same as Paul's, that no one would turn from the gospel and then spend eternity in regret. Thinking back like we like to do. Oh, if I had just done that one thing. Well, for the non-believer, they'll have eternity to think about it. Last two verses, 30 and 31. It says, When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and to those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man's done nothing deserving of death or chains. They weren't converted to the gospel, but they were persuaded enough to be nice to Paul. Uh, it's, and they basically said, it's too bad that he's appealed uh, to Caesar or else we would have set him free. Well, in the middle of all this, Paul was not thinking about his 
freedom. He was not thinking about his circumstances. He was not thinking about his chains. His heart was burdened for their chains. And he was trying to share the gospel with them. And that's all he cared about. May it be the same with us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Father is living and is breathing and is active. And so we just ask that you use your word today to change our hearts and our minds. Make us more like Christ for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.